0: In this episode, we look at the toilet of the future, why you might be wishing on celestial skid marks, and Noah goes on an Aristotelian wild deuce chase. Welcome to Fax Machine. Listeners, my name is Rob, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Noah. Hello. And Emily. Hi. Today, we're recording episode number 22, and our focus is number twos. (laughs) That's right. Today, it's our duty to drop you some fartsical facts. (laughs) Yeah, get ready for this. (laughs) Fartsicle?
1: What's that? (laughs) Oh, farcicle.
0: Oh, farcicle. Yeah. (laughs) Don't think about a fart sickle too long Buckle up, listeners (laughs) It's gonna be a rough ride But all of our facts today are gonna be related to The defecatory process Each one of us will share one fecal fact Have a little discussion And then we can have an excremental quiz Loosely inspired by the theme (laughs) But before we do that First off, we have a new website. Think, yeah.
1: yeah, we do. So we're at faxmachinepodcast.com and it features some more info about the podcast, about us, also a full archive of all of our episodes and all sorts of cool supplemental information and research, um, and a section for news, including about our upcoming live show.
0: And that is our second fact. We are doing a live show. Yeah. And the venue, mm-hmm. the date, and the time are all settled. So please, come see us live at Caveat on the Lower East Side of New York on Monday, April 29th, the Doors open at 9 p.m. Drinks are on Noah. Hey, whoa, what's up? Hey, yeah, yeah oh, are. Uh, we decided that <laughs> no, in the pre-show meeting, but you weren't here.
2: Oh, man. Right, well, guys, yes. can you at least keep it to one to drink apiece? Uh, no,
0: totally not. Uh, <laughs> oh, so oh, the rest of you can find details and tickets on our website, faxmachinepodcast.com. So you guys can come on down, talk with us after the show. It should be a really fun time at Caveat. Uh, and we hope to see you all there. And with that, I'll hand it over to Noah. This week I learned that
2: meconium, which is the odorless first stool of a newborn human, is said to have been named by Aristotle, who thought that it induced sleep in utero. Okay. So tell me more. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) as I mentioned, meconium is the first stool of a newborn baby, Um, and I did a lot of research on this fact, Uh, I had to read a lot of, you know, papers written by doctors about meconium. Basically, what meconium is, is like, while the baby is in the uterus, like, it sort of just ingests a lot of, you know, material from amniotic fluid, it's just stuff like uh, epithelial cells, and mucus, amniotic fluid, but it's also got this weird, like, viscous, sticky consistency, um, and it's also... like a very dark color even like olive green but what's great about it according to parents is that it doesn't smell and so people always remark they expect like a baby's first poop to smell really bad as all the rest of them do (laughs) um but actually it's sort of unique and that it doesn't smell what i also mentioned in the fact was that meconium was said to have gotten its name from aristotle um, who thought that it induced sleep in utero? And so this comes from uh, one of Aristotle's books on the history of animals, where he was actually observing sort of midwives uh, help pregnant women give birth. And so in On the History of Animals, he says, directly they come forth, they cry out and bring their hands to their mouth. There is evacuation of excrement, sometimes at once, sometimes soon, but always within the day. And this excrement is more than accords with the bulk of the child. <laughs> And I really, honestly, I was not totally sure what that means. I mean, it's more than accords with the bulk of the child. I think it means just like, there's a lot more of it than you think. Disproportionately (laughs) big poop. Exactly. Um, So another interesting thing uh, that I learned was that, so, so when I was first reading about this and like all these papers written by like OBGYNs, just doctors talking about the history of meconium, particularly sort of an introductory paragraph to talking about various diseases or syndromes that are related to meconium. In, in medicine, they would always cite Aristotle as having first coined the term, but also didn't cite it at all. So it took me a really long time to dig through, you know, all the literature to try to find where he himself actually did that. And it actually turns out that he did not coin the term, but what really happens is in the next sentence of, of that, uh, that part of on the history of animals, he says, women call it meconium. Her story. Yes, exactly. Ooh. So it was actually that uh, the midwives <laughs> had given it this name, meconium, um, and Aristotle just described it, and then historians and people later on, doctors, just ascribed that name to Aristotle.
1: So surprising.
2: But it's <laughs> fantastic, though. <laughs> yeah. So, so what meconium means uh, is opium. And the Whoa. reason it means opium is because it was, it's firstly, opium, as it like came out of the poppy, was this black, tarry, dark substance. Um, and the other reason is that it was thought at the time, and then as recorded by Aristotle, to induce drowsiness in the fetus in the womb. Um, and it was apparently, Aristotle, having observed a lot of these uh, of these births, had said that the um, meconium present in the amniotic fluid, like during birth, was uh, related to the the baby coming out being sort of really like low energy and drowsy. Now we know that meconium being the amniotic fluid is actually really really bad, and you can get something called meconium inhalation syndrome, which is really dangerous. But yeah, so so it's a uh, something that doctors are concerned about even today. But reading about this. It got me thinking, like, Aristotle, obviously, you know, anyone who studies anything basically has heard about Aristotle. He made fundamental contributions in the early history of science to physics and biology and philosophy.
0: So basically, any major in college, you can read about Aristotle. I was going to say, any major in college is the title of a book by Aristotle. Is it really? I mean, almost. I was looking on his Wikipedia page to prepare for (laughs) this. Almost, guys. He didn't write a book called Women Studies. I'm sorry. (laughs) But I definitely, like, I was looking through all the titles, and it was like, rhetoric, physics, like, astronomy, like, every every major that you could come across was, like, one of the tabs on Aristotle's Wikipedia page. Anyway, reading about, like, what Aristotle
2: was saying about poop, this weird question got in the back of my head, and it was basically just, what else has Aristotle said about poop? And, <laughs> and this led me on, like, a crazy just adventure trying to find read through like every work by Aristotle, like searching as many different terms for poop as I could find. Like, in so the it document. was
0: it was a wild deuce chase. <laughs> oh my, God. <laughs> oh my God. Why do you have to ruin
2: everything? <laughs>
1: You are just waiting to drop that one, weren't
2: you? (laughs) Oh, jeez. But one of the things I found, it was this really, really cool book um, by Aristotle. And the real name of this, guys, I swear I'm not making this up, is Sense and Sensibilia. And you may recognize... (laughs) familiar. Exactly. It sounds a lot like (laughs) Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not accusing her of plagiarism. I don't think that that book is that much about poop. (laughs) Um, but this book talks about it so so sense and sensibilia basically is translated obviously from the greek but it really means like sense and the things that can be sensed so he was talking about sight taste touch hearing smell right and so if you had to guess in which of those would you think that he talks about poop just honestly what's your honest guess Mm, smell that's a perfectly reasonable guess but it's taste. No. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I swear to God, I read this whole thing, and the only time I could find that he talks about poop is in the taste section. And it's it's kind of important for background to understand that Aristotle has this concept that, you know, goes throughout his work of the golden mean. And so basically, what this is is he believes that a lot of the qualities that you can describe to everything, be it like personality or just physical characteristics of objects, have two extremes. And what you want to be is in the middle. So for example, um, courage, right? Courage, if you're right in the middle of the two extremes, you're brave. But if you have too much courage, you're reckless. If you have too little, you're too timid. So every personality trait, every object, lies somewhere on the spectrum between two extremes. So where Poop comes in um, is he was talking about how in taste most things in his, in his mind, there are two main tastes in opposition. He thought they were sweet and bitter. Now today we know that there are five tastes. Do you guys know what they are?
0: Ooh, yes. Um, sweet, sour, Bitter, salty, and umami. Umami. Yeah, umami is the last one. (laughs) Most
2: recently described early 20th century. But Aristotle thought that there were two main tastes in opposition, so sweet and bitter, and that all the other tastes sort of lie on the spectrum between those. So what he says is, quote, Heat causes growth and fits the foodstuff for alimentation. And here, alimentation means like nutritive quality. It attracts into the organic system that which is light, for example, the sweet, while the salt and bitter it rejects because of their heaviness. Something that he's saying here, basically, is that things that are sweet, uh, you know, at one extreme, also fit in on this other extreme, that is between light versus heavy. So Aristotle believes that things that are taste sweet Literally float in your stomach and aren't heavy enough to be weighed down, so they go all the way through your intestines. So what you have to do, even though sweet tastes the best and bitter doesn't taste good, what you have to do is include some bitterness so that it will be weighed down, and the sweetness can like go into your bloodstream, right? Sweet carbohydrates are obviously nutritive. You know, a lot of our system works on you know having glucose available, so you know it can do sure. stuff in the body. I'm a scientist, um, <laughs> and
0: basically he's saying the exact opposite of what Mary Poppins was saying. <laughs> and that you need a spoonful of bitterness to make the sugar go down. <laughs> yes,
2: exactly. So so basically what Aristotle is saying is that the digestive system wants to take all the sweet things out of what we've eaten and leave everything behind that's salty or bitter. So he's implying there that poop tastes bitter. <laughs> And and I'm not the only person who thinks this, because Thomas Aquinas, writing in the commentary on Aristotle's Sense and Sensibilia, says that the body prepares nourishment by digesting in much as it draws out what is light and sweet and leaves what is salty and bitter because of its heaviness, which is why all feces of animals are quite bitter or salty. Well, there <laughs>
0: yeah. you go. Okay. I guess it's better than tasting it, which is really where I thought this was going. That if it's you arrive at this conclusion by logic, even if you're wrong, it's better than eating shit.
2: Well, I mean, so so listen though, listen though, Thomas Aquinas clearly states, which is why all feces of animals are quite bitter or salty. So Mm -hmm. somebody has come to that conclusion. Yeah, that
1: phrasing suggests that it has been tried.
2: And the (laughs) only way that Aristotle could have known that all the sweetness came out of it is by tasting feces. Yeah, and knowing that it was bitter. Oh,
0: okay. So I also looked into Aristotle a little bit for the things that he had written, um, and I found one that I found really interesting. Um, so he he fancied himself a bit of a biologist. Or I'd say it wasn't his strong suit necessarily. Um, in this same tome, he classified all animals into either having bones or lacking blood. And those, <laughs> those the are the two, <laughs> two types of like, animals: sweet
2: versus bitter, bones versus blood. <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right. But there's like <laughs> this is just two parallel lines of like. Blood but no bones? Bones but no blood? Like, <laughs> what about those? <laughs> so, in this... Say, and also, if, if you're a bloodless animal, he called them cephalopods, which is immensely confusing reading his works because, yeah. like, that's not what cephalopods necessarily are.
2: No, but he does actually describe... Uh, I read a lot. <laughs> he does actually specifically... Wait, des- not
1: just about poop?
2: No, not... Wow, I, you're I actually read things that Aristotle wrote that weren't about poop. Uh, and one of the things was he actually described cephalopods as... And calls them cephalopods, basically like head feet, because it's, <laughs> he describes them as a head, out of which some, fe- you know, like tentacles feet grow. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, I'm definitely not here to knock Aristotle, but uh, I, I will say, I think um, in his biology, he has a couple inaccuracies. Um, one of which I really liked, though, was he, um, in his classification of souls, he talks about the souls of living things. So there's the vegetative soul, which belongs to a plant. Um, and then there's the soul of animals, which he calls the sensitive soul, which is different than the rational soul of humans. And I don't know if you're like me, but when you hear the term sensitive, sensitive soul, soul, who do you think of? Me? <laughs> is it me, Rob? <laughs> oh, no. Because this is this is such an important bridge to tie this all back to our theme. What is it? Sensitive soul? Okay. If I said, I'm a sensitive soul. Oh, boy. But I theme thick-skinned. Oh. and it hurts that my friends never stood downwind with st- No the shame he was ashamed
2: <laughs> I still don't get it <laughs>
0: and my <laughs>
3: name and
0: then I, I got, got down-hearted. downhearted yes <laughs> every time that I oh Pumbaa not in front of the kids
2: it's Pumbaa Noah. <laughs> <laughs> we from Lion King.
0: and it's under the sea under the sea maybe it's
2: better Downward or it's wetter take it from me
0: Basically, the point I'm making is Aristotle called animals sensitive souls. Pumbaa is an animal from the Lion King. Pumbaa farts a lot. Oh, nice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Connected all the dots. Yeah. Therefore, so simple. Aristotle
0: (laughs) wrote the Lion King.
1: Wow. (laughs) He really could do it all. So uh, I just kind of took the angle for an extra fact here of looking into Aristotle and babies and did find a surprising link, uh, not only between Aristotle and babies, but also between Aristotle and baby making.
3: (laughs) So there's this book
1: called Aristotle's Masterpiece. Aristotle's Masterpiece was a best-selling uh, 17th to 19th century because it had multiple editions over those centuries, sex and pregnancy guide with an unknown author who was not Aristotle but claimed to be Aristotle.
2: Well, so- I think if he was claiming it, you know it wasn't Aristotle. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. If it was between the 17th and 19th centuries and someone was like, I'm Aristotle, that's their first clue. <laughs> it's
0: like, hey guys, have you read the new Aristotle? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Like Tupac, they just keep releasing them forever. <laughs>
1: exactly, you found the flaw right away. So, a while back in this podcast, we had hashtag fake spear, So, now I'd mm-hmm. like to offer hashtag Aristotle, but like with ERR, like an error. <laughs> That's Get good. It? All right, we'll I love it. it. Um, so the reason that this book was ascribed to Aristotle uh, was actually that he was considered a sex expert in England uh, at the time, and Aristotle itself was actually slaying for carnal knowledge or smut. So if you saw the word Aristotle on a book in the Victorian era, you knew what you were in for. I, I thought you wow. said
2: that Aristotle was slaying. <laughs> <laughs> that he was a sex he, expert I and mean, Aristotle based on the was slang. He
1: kind of was. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's actually apocryphal that the book was banned in England until the 1960s. Uh, while it was never formally banned, given its obscene contents, it certainly wasn't in the front windows of any bookshops either. Uh, So the third edition of the book, and the most widely known one, came out in the 19th century, and it was written to contain some modern knowledge uh, about the subject uh, of sex and pregnancy and biology, but also purposefully contained some outdated information, Uh, so including home remedies or old wives tales, just as a joke and also to kind of lend credence to the idea that it was written by Aristotle many centuries before, it was still the most accurate piece of literature about sexuality available at the time. So I will say that it did get some things right, and it also got some things very bizarrely wrong. So among things that it got right uh, were the symptoms of pregnancy. Uh, It was also a pretty helpful guide for midwives regarding child delivery and also featuring anatomical depictions of the womb. Uh, It did say that a torn hymen does not equal a non-virgin. Pretty cool. Uh, also offered tips on, in quotes, the use and actions of the genitals. So essentially the <laughs> mechanics of sex, uh, but also stressed that mutual pleasure is needed for conception, Good. which, yeah. while not necessarily true, is solid advice. Hashtag woke Aristotle.
0: Wow. <laughs> I have to say, the, <laughs> to use, <make> <laughs> the use and actions of the genitals is the least sexy way to describe sex <laughs> that I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs>
1: What, that's not typical foreplay. Talk for you. Hey girl. Would, would you like to well, use, use her or her act way? upon my <laughs> genitals?
2: <laughs> Personally, the least sexy way I've ever heard genitals described was Rob's Aristotle fan fiction. <laughs> oh, you found that? Yeah. Oh jeez.
1: <laughs> this week I learned that researchers are exploring the possibility of recycling astronaut poop. Into astronaut food. No. Yeah. Now I know that sounds really gross, but to be honest, it is. It's it's quite (laughs) gross. In fact, it's actually more gross than you're probably already imagining. But conceptually, it's also really cool, especially given that longer, farther shuttle journeys and initiatives to settle Mars are becoming a less distant reality every day. Our plans to explore uncharted celestial territory and book shuttle flights without a return ticket have created a demand for tech that'll allow astronauts to live solely off of what they can carry, while also avoiding accumulation of any additional stuff that'll weigh them down. So to address this demand, NASA researchers have been developing new and creative strategies to maximize allocation of cargo space while also minimizing waste. The solution? Make as many resources that astronauts depend on reusable and self-sustaining. Or... To sum it up in a way that brings us back to our fact, when you're trying to save space, in space, a poo is a terrible thing to waste. (laughs) (laughs) So to add a little context here, uh, the idea of recycling human waste in space is not a new one. The ISS actually reclaims about 93% of the water they use with a special conditioning system that purifies it from various input sources, including urine, gray water, sweat, and even water vapor. Um, But we currently don't have a sophisticated system for handling number twos. Instead, astronaut dookies are simply launched into space. (laughs) Yeah, and I learned that from a surprisingly tongue-in-cheek infographic that NASA released in 2015 summarizing all sorts of milestones that astronaut Scott Kelly would achieve during his record-breaking year in space. Do you guys want to hear some of these milestones? Absolutely. So forewarning, they might make you feel really strangely inadequate as a person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So one of them uh, is astronaut Scott Kelly saw 10,944 sunrises and sunsets during his hashtag year in space. And we only saw 684, which I didn't feel bad about until now. Thanks, NASA. Uh, Also, per the infographic, uh, they estimated that about 383 experiments would be conducted during his hashtag year in space, including some created by Nobel laureates. Now, as a grad student, that one especially stings, and I really hope my (laughs) PI isn't listening and getting any ideas. Uh, And the relevant one to this fact uh, is that Scott Kelly produced about 180 pounds of feces that will burn up in the atmosphere and look like shooting stars. Our feces... (laughs) would not be shooting stars. (laughs) (laughs) Pooting stars. I'm assuming that's meant to be motivating, like in a, hey kids, if you stay in school and study hard, maybe one day your poop can also create bright majestic skid marks across the night sky. (laughs) I don't know. Not sure what their angle was, but it's interesting.
0: That's definitely the best PR on that ever. Instead of <laughs> poop rains down from heaven.
1: Oh, God. It's, all, it's all about the spin. <laughs> but in digging through piles of information on this subject, I discovered that ideas to use astronaut waste for purposes other than poop comets have actually been around for decades. The oldest idea I found came from, of all places, a tweet uh, by Avery Truffleman, a producer on 99. 9% Invisible, and the creator of the fantastic series, Articles of Interest, which I love, can't recommend enough. Um, but essentially, her tweet brought up a 1960s proposal by Boeing to use astronaut waste as fertilizer to grow algae. This algae could then be grounds into a flower-like substance and repurposed for food, such as, as she pointed out in her all-caps tweet, poop muffins (laughs) (laughs) so given the nausea vomiting and uncontrollable diarrhea in quotes experienced by soylent customers when Aljo flour was introduced in version 1.6 of the product it was removed from version 1.7 it's probably for the best that this idea went down the toilet Various non-food-related uses for astronaut poo have also been proposed, including incinerating it to produce fertilizer for gardening in lunar or Martian soil, lining spacecraft with it to shield astronauts from cosmic radiation, and feeding algae grown from it to a strain of genetically modified yeast that can then metabolize it into plastics for 3D printing. So apart from uses as fertilizer or for 3D printing, there's also been a renewed interest in recovering nutrition from astronaut dumps and then repackaging it back into astronauts astronaut dinners. Now, you'd think that, considering all the technological leaps and bounds humanity has achieved since this idea was proposed in the 60s, by now we'd have come up with a comparatively less stomach-turning proposition than poop muffins.
2: Well, (laughs) Every time it gets me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a great phrase. Well, that's where you'd be wrong. In a 2018 study, researchers from the Penn State Department of Geosciences and Astrobiology Research Center described a method of anaerobic digestion by which bacteria could convert feces to methane. This methane could then feed another type of bacteria called methylococcus capsulatus, and these bacteria could be harvested as, from the paper, a protein and lipid-rich biomass that can be directly consumed or used to produce other high-protein food sources such as fish. And the authors found that certain bacterial species that thrive in extreme conditions like high heat or alkalinity could also be grown into nutritious biomass in the same manner, which is actually pretty cool because then you don't have to worry about pathogenic interlopers that can't survive the aforementioned extreme conditions, Mm. contaminating the biomass and making astronauts who eat it sick. Interesting. So sounds like these researchers have figured it out. They've come up with an ingenious way to supplement astronauts' diets with a nutrient-rich snack while also reducing the amount of poo we thoughtlessly chuck into space. (laughs) Awesome. It would be the perfect solution were it not for one appetite-killing problem. Uh Christopher House, a co-author of the study, describes the edible biomass as such. It's a little strange. But the concept would be a little bit like Marmite or Vegemite, where you're eating a smear of microbial goo.
0: So I just found a couple other things uh, about where poop has been used for the powers of good, um, possibly in (laughs) space, possibly back here on Earth. Um, So there's a little write-up in the BBC about places where poop could be used um, uh, to help astronauts. One I found really interesting, which was poop is something that will accumulate over time, so you could use it to fix a chronic problem, like building a radiation shield. And you could just oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. literally line the walls of your spaceship with poop so that less and less radiation gets through. I would yeah. rather
2: die from radiation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just like, oh, I'll just smear this over here and that's good for later. So,
1: from what I saw, it's not its not like exposed inside of the space shuttle.
0: Yeah, just, I think they, they packed it in. Like just a in.
1: cavern with like stalactites <laughs> of
2: poop. <laughs> Stalagshites. Yes! <laughs>
1: Fantastic.
0: Uh, another one that's really interesting, more more kind of earthbound is, and I've read about this before and even heard about it on other podcasts, but they estimate that the, um, the amount of valuable metals lost in human waste every year is approximately $13 million. Wow. Whoa.
3: Um,
0: and so an Arizona State University professor, Dr. Paul Westerhoff, says the majority of that actually can be concentrated um, from uh, certain areas, specifically where dentists live because uh-huh. they're coming through um, the sewage that derives from domestic dentist office because they had caps and fillings made out of gold and silver.
3: Mm. Oh, and
0: so interesting. it's often been written that the value of that gold, thirty million million would cost more than that to extract. <laughs> yeah. But if you mm. just went to the blocks that dentists lived on <laughs> and did like the cheapest, quickest process, you might actually be able to make money out of extracting the gold and silver.
2: I love that this yeah. like Arizona state professor is basically just some prospector going like there's gold
0: and then there's stools. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) but the best and worst example for me was about using poop for transport fuel and i think we may have mentioned it earlier in the episode but um actually producing methane uh, which is a simple byproduct from human feces can actually be turned into a usable gas fuel um now i actually found out about this company a little while ago and there's one problem i'm going to tell you what they do uh they actually they're a group called First Group Transport Company. They run a bus in the United Kingdom powered by poo that runs back and forth from an airport um The name of this organization is the biobus oh no <laughs> which is the name of the science education company that I work for in New York City. <laughs> But the bio that they're talking about is extremely different. Well, I think, <laughs> hold on. I think there's. this is the moment where
2: you should contact them and tell them that they should change their name to the Magic Stool Bus. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so this week I learned scientists have invented a toilet that vaporizes your poop. And it could save millions of gallons of water. Nice. Cool. Yeah, sounds pretty good. And that might not even be the coolest way scientists are improving toilets right now. But we'll get to that later. First, I want to adjust the visual that you're having about <laughs> vaporizing poop. Thank you. Because I'm pretty sure that like when I first read this, um, it was like a, a Martian with a laser gun just pointing it at poop and it was <laughs> disappearing. So if anyone else had that same visual, it's not like that. Okay, now that, we've settled, <laughs> now that we've settled that, this is a story about a scientist named Diana Youssef who created a waterless toilet and the company Change Colon Water Labs. <laughs> I say colon because it's inexplicably in the title of Change Water Labs and also because it has to do with poop. <laughs> Change Water Labs, uh, they, they've they dubbed themselves as a, um, they're a science company. They're also essentially like a poop treatment company. So they're kind of a, a sanitation company, but they they've dubbed themselves a sewage logistics optimization business, <laughs> which is just the best nonsense name for something that just gets rid <laughs> of poop. Um, but but all credit to them because they have a great technology. So uh, the tech actually involves water wicking polymers. So these are plastics that they kind of invented and they synthesized themselves basically what what happens an individual uh, would use one of these specialized toilets Um, their waste would fall into this this polymer package at the bottom and it would slowly actually the water would be taken out of it because of just being in contact with the surrounding plastic Um, the water vapor as it gets pulled out through the plastic then gets released as water vapor gas the solid waste is essentially condensed um, into a a hard uh, liquid free uh, waste package um, that's wrapped in the polymer kind of on all sides um, and this this casing should be uh, big enough to last the family of five to six about two weeks. Sorry, wait. Are they eating it? What are they doing?
1: Well, I think the implication is that like in their bathroom, like it can mm-hmm. collect like that amount of time oh,
0: of poop
2: for a family of yeah, six. Uh, okay, because <laughs> you say like you can last a family for six weeks. That usually <laughs> means they <have> guns <laughs> on, to be snacking on it <laughs>
3: <laughs> on poop alone.
0: <laughs> but also, Emily just talked about that. So no, it's definitely seated okay. in your mind. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but but such a toilet uh, with one of these polymer cases on the bottom could be used by a family of five to six um, for about two weeks before the the polymer had to be replaced. Mm. Um, and wow. so this end result is this like really densely plastic wrapped um, solid waste product has been called by the lab shrink wrap for crap. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is their, their... Why don't they just call it shrink crap? Shrink crap. Oh wow! Oh, man. Let's write them an email. Wow! Let's make some bills. <laughs>
2: <laughs> We're naming so and many. You know what? In
0: this and podcast. what their 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 uh, tagline could be? What a waste!
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> you That's guys, amazing. you guys can use that. <laughs> yeah, because if I, you're listening out there, anyone, clean dot, what was it colon <laughs> clean
0: colon water labs clean colon water labs. That's, That's all yours. you freebie.
1: Welcome. Go for it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but so. <laughs> So they they have a globalization plan for this crap shrink wrapping or shrink crapping process, um, which they, they hope can actually like, like be used all around the world at low cost. Um right now, they think each pouch would cost somewhere between three and fifteen dollars depending on how their their uh, synthesis goes. And it's really it's a completely new type of fecal disposal system um, because the two that are kind of currently extant in the world are kind of smelly compost waste collections and also latrine collections which are a little bit less um, noxious, but they are high maintenance. You have to clean out uh, latrines and sewage pits. And so both of them have a cost uh, benefit, but neither one of them is quite as convenient of having just water wicking plastic. Take all the water out of your solid, create a solid waste. And actually, this is a process that we may talk about later, is very costly even in industrialized nations to reduce waste down into like a solid and, and, and kind of manageable brick. The polymer membrane, they think, could do other things too on an industrial and commercial level. Uh, it could be applied as wastewater treatment for uh, bigger nations, uh, for cities like New York. It could also be used to filter out pharmaceutical products um, so that you could remove antibiotics and other harmful things that are ruining our environment because of how much humans use them, things like dyes and medical waste. And finally, there's the potential for um, kind of optimizing it for off-grid desalinization projects mm. to create clean water from saltwater. So this is all really exciting things that you can do with this water-wicking polymer. So the cool thing in reading about this um, is it actually reminded me of another cost-saving mechanism for saving water while taking poops. Um, so I was at a talk at the Museum of Natural History this year uh, where I saw the speaker talking about something called slips polymers. Um, And so that is a a clever acronym for slippery, liquid-infused porous surfaces. Mm. Uh, They were developed by the Weiss Institute, um, and the speaker was one of the primary inventors who's now uh, moved and started his own lab. And what it does is it's created an essentially friction-free surface. So he did a lot of kind of mechanical and materials testings on this to show that it was like essentially friction-free and how things interacted with it. Um, And his videos were just incredible. So we're all familiar with how, how bugs, particularly ants, are very good at climbing up the sides of things. Yeah. right. And you yeah. can imagine, like, ants in a in a Petri dish maybe climbing up the sides of the, the plastic or glass wall. They came upon this slips-coated surface, and they just, like, slipped and <laughs> fell. We're completely Aww. unable to do anything with it. He went on to show what this surface looked like. And actually, it's applications for things like blood smears um, and collecting blood. And so he put a drop of liquid on the surface of a slide that was coated in this. And in a way that I've never seen, and like can't actually describe to you. You're familiar with how a droplet of water would run across a surface, right? Yeah. And you can imagine if you reduce the friction of that surface, the droplet would run much quicker, and it might become lower to the glass and kind of actually just speed along. Wasn't it that the this isn't the surface just really hydrophobic? Wasn't that kind of the point? Exactly. And oh. so essentially, what happens is a drop of water on this surface will disperse the droplet flat, and it will just oh. kind of run over it without interacting with the surface at all. Wow. And so this technology. Is derived from a plant, actually. Huh. So it's the surface of a plant that makes a very unique kind of surface texture. It's called a pitcher plant. Oh, Nepenthes.
2: Yes. I, yes. <laughs> the Botanist <laughs> in you is really coming out. Yes, now. um, I'm genuinely amazed that this has come up because Nepenthes actually has this fascinating other behavior, um, that is incredibly relevant to both what you're talking about with toilets and also the broader poop fact. Um, and oh. it's that it has a mutualistic relationship with the mountain tree shrew. So, both these, um, they live in Borneo in Indonesia, um, and Basically, what happens is that, just like you said before, where the insects go up to try to get the nectar, um, this tree shrew is, I guess, adapted in some way to be able to get to the nectar without falling in. And it can only get to it in such a way that it is positioned over the mouth of the pitcher plant so that it defecates into the bowl... of the pitcher plant and the pitcher plant uses the the feces to sort of as as nutrients along with oh. all the insects and stuff it gets in. So not only is this really interesting because scientists have used the side of this to improve toilets,
0: it also is a toilet for <laughs> other animals. It's ridiculous. That's so amazing. Oh uh, wow. I had no well, idea yeah. about that fact. But yeah, that's that's the second way that like toilets could be materially improved by increasing or changing the polymers that they're made out of. So it's either have a toilet that takes all the water out of your poo, or take all the water out of your toilet and just have the poo slide away on its own.
2: Has anyone tried to go the other direction and just like put a mountain tree shrew in everyone's home? I think that's. Or would the... that not help? <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: the next logical step, I think.
2: Obviously.
1: So, you know how they say that shit always runs downhill?
0: Where is this going?
1: Downhill. Pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's one place that it doesn't, and it's actually a really big problem. Mount Everest.
2: Oh, yeah, interesting. It's
1: very problematic there. Uh, a and famous hill. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a mild understatement. <laughs> so, as you know, a lot of people go up there and spend a lot of time up there, especially at the base camp, uh, where climbers spend months acclimatizing and pooping. So, to put some numbers to that, about 4,500 people uh, have been up there since Tenzing Norgay Sherpa and Sir Edmund Hillary's trip in 1953, and that equates to about 26,000 pounds of poop per year, or 12 wow. tons. That's a lot. That's a shit
2: ton. It's <laughs> or converted a shit ton.
1: Um, and because there's no plumbing on top of the tallest peak on Earth, go figure. All of that poop has to be carried back down and disposed of somewhere. And that somewhere uh, is actually a village at the base of the mountain called Gorak Shep. Uh, so the poop is collected in plastic lined barrels and brought down by sherpas or yaks where it's dumped into open pits. And as these pits fill up, as pits of shit are wont to do, uh, (laughs) the waste has had to be disposed of in other places, including along a river. Um, and that river tends to flood. Yeah, exactly. During the monsoon season, um, resulting in runoff, uh, which has actually caused Gorak Shep's sources of drinking water to become contaminated on multiple Mm. occasions. So an effort to reduce the environmental impact of Mount Everest climbers, uh, or more specifically by their byproducts, has been undertaken by the Mount Everest Biogas Project, which was started by a Seattle-based engineer and Everest climber named Gary Porter. So the premise of the project uh, was to construct a biogas reactor at Gorek Shep, uh, into which waste could be dumped along with a whole bunch of bacteria. And basically the bacteria eat the poop and then produce gases like methane, which is the main ingredient of natural gas, so it can also be burned for light or heat or even converted into electricity and actually employed some pretty cool engineering adaptations uh, to the biogas reactor for the local conditions of being on mount everest so for example the reactor has to be kept at the right temperature specifically 20 to 30 degrees celsius for bacteria to survive and they achieve this with solar panels to warm it up Uh, and the reactor is also constructed to be earthquake resistant And actually, the builders of the reactor also hope that the methane produced by it can alleviate another problem that climbers create uh, by serving as cooking fuel. So as we said, there's lots of climbers and they need to eat so they can poop. Uh, (laughs) The locals have had to turn to alternate sources of cooking fuel, such as alpine juniper, which is actually an endangered species, to keep up with that demand. So the idea is that that methane and natural gas can fuel cooking instead of endangered species, which Hmm. is always a pretty nice thing.
3: Yeah.
1: and actually, as an update to this project, as of last year, they have approval from the Sagarmatha Pollution Control Committee, uh, which is a local NGO responsible for cleaning up Mount Everest, and they just need to raise the necessary funds. Uh, the first reactor is estimated to cost $500,000. That being said, if you'd like to help with this or donate, uh, you can do so at MountEverestBiogasProject.org. That's Everest Biogas Project. Um, yeah, I don't know. Small, small plug for hopefully <laughs> plugging up the poop. No, forget it. <laughs> nope. Nope. I'm just going to back away from that one.
0: So that brings us to today's quiz. I don't know if you guys were ready for a poop quiz. Poop quiz. Oh, yes. So all of today's questions are going to be somewhat lavatorial in nature. Um, we'll tell you. They are from a broad range of sources. So um, (laughs) somewhere in the fact is poop. Question number one. In July 2017, a Ventura County, California man was arrested because he didn't flush the toilet. What else was he doing while pooping?
1: This is a very broad question.
0: (laughs) Um, Uh, Texting?
2: (laughs) (laughs) No. Is it something normal? No. Um, Gosh, I have no idea. And you said this was easy. Well, so I said
0: he was arrested because he didn't flush the toilet. Does
2: that mean that he didn't poop in a toilet?
0: Oh, uh, he did, in fact, which was oh, okay. in hindsight a dumb thing to do.
2: Oh! Oh, I know it. It was it must have been in like a Home Depot or something on one of the like the <laughs> display toilets.
0: Uh, oh, no. <laughs> no, that's not it at all. What?
3: Wait, what?
0: That's definitely <laughs> what it could be. I mean sure it could be. <laughs> I guess the problem, he was arrested for doing something else, and then pooping was the thing that kind of, that did him in, in the end.
1: Was it, so he committed a crime, but is he identified by DNA from the poop that was left in the toilet?
0: That is correct.
1: Okay. But he committed
0: this
1: crime <laughs> while pooping.
2: Did he, oh, he must, did he kill someone, go to their bathroom, poop, and then leave without
0: flushing? Okay, so basically, except he's not that bad of a guy, he just <laughs> he didn't kill anyone. So the, the crime he was actually arrested for was breaking and entering.
2: Okay, okay. He, he, I don't know right.
0: why he went straight to murder.
2: Well, he, he was he arrested for it. There. Probably
0: death. Probably <laughs> death of the
2: person.
1: <laughs> because psycho would poop in someone's house and leave. Must be a murderer. <laughs>
3: exactly.
0: <laughs> but this is the case of Andrew Jensen. Um, who did his business and didn't flush after breaking into a home and stealing from the owners of the house. Um, The poop actually helped close a cold case murder in Ventura County from 1997 as well, so there was a poop-related murder solved. So how did the detectives... uh... Well, the the poop was recovered from the toilet, tested for DNA immediately, and then they realized that they had kept poop from a 1997 case, and they retested that in 2014, and that's how (laughs) they actually caught the Ventura County murderer. Wow. So question number two. This one this one <laughs> uh, our favorite. Wow. <laughs> Every question's question number two tonight. Yeah. <laughs> in the in the nineteen fourteen classic book, American Sewerage Practice, dot dot dot. <laughs> okay. and, and that's it. There's nothing after The, the ellipsis ellipse. is in the Yes. <laughs> Wait, really? Yes. American sewage practice. Um, <laughs> the authors noted uh, an interesting trend. And so the authors noted that the per capita sewage in one US city. Was double the volume of most other major cities. Perhaps they're using all that water to grow giant beans. Oh, it's Chicago. It's Chicago. Oh, yeah.
2: now I get it. Okay.
0: So for for no particular reason and for nothing that I could find in all of my reading of the free ebook version of American <laughs> Sewerage Practice, which is several hundred pages long, wow. and through which I actually went through. A lot of the charts. It's such an interesting book. Um, So Chicago then claimed about 242 gallons per capita per day. Um, That's more than double the city of Boston and most other cities like that are graphed in this chart at any point in the year. Question number three. This one I I really enjoyed. I also on the side hope that you guys didn't read things that I've sent out in the past too closely. Um, I've, oh, I've never boy. read anything you've sent me. <laughs> After all
2: that Aristotle fan fiction.
1: <laughs> Learn your lesson.
0: All right. So question number three is, according to science, to the nearest 0. 0.25 of a day, how many days does it take to poop out a Lego man's head? <laughs> oh <my God>. I, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Well, to the <laughs> listeners, I actually sent Noah and Emily an article that said... In the title, it takes this long to poop out a Lego man's head. Like, what? Like, not even a month ago.
1: Really? <laughs> yes. Oh, you totally did. Right. And, and I was then just... you were like, we had to do a poop episode, and then I just completely didn't think about it yeah, ever again. I was okay. seriously
0: banking on the fact that you always ignore me, and then I put in the quiz.
1: <laughs> oh, man. Oh, Rob, the quiz isn't supposed to have a moral to it. Come on. Okay.
0: Noah's checking his email now. <laughs> okay, let's say... Four. All right, fine. Okay. So to the nearest 0.25 of a day, you are wrong. Um, (laughs) Okay. It is actually 1.71 days. Okay. Which is. um, But so if you compare that to like the the medical data that exists, so there's actually a lot of medical data for how long it takes for certain coins to pass through the bodies of children. And uh, most of them take around two weeks, actually. So a pediatrician, if you swallow a quarter, will say sometime in the next two weeks, like. You'll get your money back. (laughs) Not from this visit, though. I hope your health insurance covers
1: it. We we don't accept poop coins as (laughs)
3: copecks.
0: But so, um, someone at the website, the medical blog, Don't Forget the Bubbles, um, decided that no one had looked into the particular object of a Lego man's head. They recruited volunteers to swallow the plastic head of a Lego figurine, and then every day they examined their poo to see how long it took. So, the Forbes author, Bruce Lee... No, not that Bruce Lee. Not that one. (laughs) (laughs) Reported that each participant kept a three-day stool log, rating their bowel movements using the stool hardness and transit score, or (laughs) SHAT score, (laughs) and a person with a higher SHAT score had looser and more frequent bowel movements. Wow. After swallowing the Lego head, each participant was responsible for analyzing their own poo to locate the object. A variety of techniques were used, which we don't need to go into here, how to analyze your own poo for Lego heads. Um, But they included tongue depressors, gloves, chopsticks, and the article says, quote, no turd was left unturned.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I think we didn't need to go into it
0: (laughs) here. That was was a brush over. (laughs) Okay. So, after retrieving the Lego head, the participants calculated their found and retrieved time, or their fart score. (laughs) This is not real. This is real. (laughs) I don't believe this. The research appears in the Journal of Pediatrics and Child Health. Two quick takeaways. No correlation between shat and fart scores. <laughs> statistically not significant um, unless you're running a marathon.
2: <laughs> oh, we've all talked about this that actually might. So, we were all watching the New York City Marathon last year. This is a this is a personal aside. I'm sure you were all like, why is he telling us this story? But we we the three of us were watching the New York City Marathon and we looked across the the street where people were running by and on the other side where the crowd was, there was somebody holding up a sign that said never trust a fart after mile 16. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my god! Oh, wise words. <laughs> All right, question number four. My goodness, what book was the first to offer the general advice "Don't shit where you eat"? It's got to be like the Bible. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Just in some sort of biblical verse. I mean, I don't, I
1: don't know. know.
2: I think it could. Be, I think it's going to be something ancient it could be like the bible or it's, it could it's be it's a pretty
1: timeless lesson it
2: could even be like you know something aristotle wrote
1: i mean no the thing earlier. is
2: i'm 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 pretty yeah. sure i may be about to setting myself up for embarrassment but i'm pretty sure i read everything aristotle's ever written about poop so i don't i don't think it would be him but i don't know it could could definitely be the bible it could be some weird thing like and he remembering what the lord had said about not pooping where thou shalt eat <laughs> <laughs>
1: There are some, like there are some sections of the Bible that offer sort of religious advice that's actually disguised as at least for the time, like practical survival and hygienic Mm -hmm. advice. So that might be one of those reaping what you sow
0: is farming advice. We'll go with it. (laughs) Is it the Bible?
2: The good book.
1: It is the Bible. Nice. And you guys
0: pretty much uh, you nailed it in terms of where. (laughs) So it's either Deuteronomy or Leviticus, basically. Uh, There we go. So I'll give you the the
2: (laughs) (laughs) perfect. (laughs) do Deuteronomy oh my god (laughs) or (laughs) 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 Lashiticus.
0: but uh, in Deuteronomy so the one translation is choose a place outside the camp for a latrine which is perhaps the simplest and least kind of explicit version of it Uh, it goes into great detail because you must have a place outside the camp to go and relieve yourself and you must have a digging tool in your equipment so that when you relieve yourself you can dig a hole and cover up your excrement So that's one explicit piece of advice for when you're in a camp, specifically at a time of war, but that probably refers to any time, um, such that the camp is a a sacred place because the Lord is with you, and so you must leave the camp to poo. Um, So I just want to be clear, because the Bible is a little bit euphemized, probably in our modern versions. So this is not to be confused with discharges and the uncleanliness of man or woman, that's later explained in Leviticus, where they say, say to the Israelites, the man has a bodily discharge, and the discharge is unclean. Anyone who touches his bed must watch his clothes, and he will be unclean until evening. Buddy, this yeah. isn't about poop. I know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, I'm
2: glad, and I'm glad I, just, I didn't have to explain to you what it's about, <laughs> but I, I guess you're going to explain to us what it's about right now. We
0: don't need to. The thing I wanted to bring up, though, was that like, for, for poop, there's no timeline, but specifically for this specific male discharge, <laughs> everything is unclean until evening. Like, <laughs> until evening. There's a laundry list of things that are just like, well, if you touch it, you're unclean until evening.
2: Well, the laundry list does include his bed sheets.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we, we need that go through. Through all the the details now. Or talk about any of the women's health concerns in this book. Ever. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Question number five. In the 2000s, the streets of the city of Dakar were rife with human waste because the collection of human waste was too expensive as it was subject to the actions of a poop cartel. (laughs) I'll tell you more about that. Your question is merely... The
1: weirdest cartels in this podcast.
0: (laughs) I love it, though. Your question is merely tell me... In what country is the city of Dakar? Oh, oh. I think you used it in your mixed-up capitals trivia round in the Um, past. Is it Senegal? Yes. Okay, yeah. Whoa. Yeah, so it is the capital of Senegal. Very nice. So uh, this is a wild story, actually, that I lifted from the NPR Planet Money podcast about the poop cartel and their price-fixing scheme for cleaning out um, septic (laughs) tanks in Dakar. So uh, what they talk about is how Dr. Molly Lipscomb of UVA, an economist, actually went to Dakar to try to undo this cartel so that the prices would fall to levels where people could afford them. Because what was happening was they couldn't afford removal, so they just disposed of their own waste in the street or in unsanitary ways. Basically, the drivers had all made a pact to not charge less than a certain number, but she created a text or phone-based application in which you could ask for poop removal privately, and they wouldn't have to admit to their other drivers that they were taking less money. So this poop-summoning phone app was essentially Poober. (laughs) 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 But it actually (laughs) worked. It succeeded in reducing the overall price and kind of undoing this this unofficial cartel that was holding the price of poop at an outrageously high number for removal. Uh, So yeah, it's a cool story. Interesting. Hmm. Question number six. This one is just a, a kind of nostalgic question that I really like. But what recent sequel, as part of a film series, had several movie critics call it one big pile of shit, employing a little bit of nostalgia to berate all the film's shortcomings.
2: Oh, um, is it one of the Jurassic Park movies? Uh, it's what Jurassic World?
0: Yeah, so it's the most recent oh. Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom. Okay. Um, there are so many problems with the character development, the plot lines, um, why they built a an amusement park on a volcanic island, <laughs> like so many things that basically couldn't and shouldn't be answered in the course of a movie that critics really tore it apart. But they called back to one of the kind of best scenes of the original Jurassic Park movie where they're looking at a humongous pile of Triceratops poop. um, And Jeff Goldblum delivers the line in his classic manner. That's one big pile of shit. (laughs) Not to mention the scene where the guy's (laughs) sitting on the toilet and the Tyrannosaurus eats him. That's true. <laughs> that is a very poop-centered movie, isn't it? There's
2: <laughs> a lot about poop in that. Surprisingly. There was, was is that also the Jeff that scene you mentioned? Is that also the one where they they hear the uh, the phone ringing in the pile of dinosaur shit? That might have been in one of the sequels. I think where they're looking for like their satellite phone. I think this is the one where they parachute into the dinosaur island, um, and then they're looking for their satellite phone, which they had lost was that because somebody got eaten and was holding it. And they found the pile of you know like tyrannosaurus poop or something. Uh, and then they hear like the do do do
0: do 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 <laughs> and, oh,
2: and then they have to like no. reach in and get it out.
0: Was that Lost World?
2: I think it's like the second or third, oh, the one. the third one. okay. Yeah.
0: Question number seven. I'm going to give you a true or false question in this quiz. True or false? Chewing gum can help decrease the amount of gas that you fart. Uh,
2: What do you think, Emily?
1: I'm going to go with false.
0: So from a Vox.com article, um, they claim that there are several things that can increase the amount you fart daily, and one of those things is chewing gum. Um, Chewing leads to inadvertent swallowing of air.
1: Exactly. Uh, And according
0: to Puma Kashyap at the Mayo Clinic, that volume is half a liter to one and a half liters of gas a day. Damn. Uh, that's citing a 1991 article in the journal gut <laughs> <laughs> so yeah if you want to decrease the amount that you fart just try chewing a little less gum and if you don't chew gum ever well hell, that's not the reason that's bad <laughs> <laughs>
2: maybe try cutting out dairy
0: <laughs> all right and we're on to question number eight this is a new york history question from 1992 to 2012 what centennial state did New York City ship all of our human waste sludge to in order to be repurposed as fertilizer?
1: What is what is meant by a centennial state? That it, be, it earned its statehood? What does that mean? So yeah.
0: I'll tell you what it means is that the centennial state gained statehood in 1876, mm-hmm. the 100th anniversary of America. Ah, okay. And gotcha. that is its official state nickname for that reason.
1: I see. Okay, that makes sense. Um, 1876. So then centennial. out west, you would think. Yeah.
0: So the last hint I'll give you: um, the name of the state, the real name of the state, was actually given to it because of the views and the different kind of like the the visual intake that visitors first experienced passing through it. They thought that it was beautiful for its many colors and kind of uh, different landscapes. Is it Montana? Because mountains. It is not, but you're thinking correctly. Okay.
2: Okay. Is it Colorado? <gasps> it's Colorado. Is it, how is? Oh, color- colors.
0: Yes. so Yes. It's, it's the yeah. state of, okay. like, place of colors. Color. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's rough. <laughs> and so the, the story here, which is totally buried lead now, um, a <laughs> <is, laughs> uh, 1.3 billion gallons of wastewater per day are produced in New York City. That's 7 billion pounds of waste. Uh, until 1986, most of it went untreated directly into the Hudson River. Gross. After which it started to be treated in certain ways. Now it's actually digested and it gets converted into 125 million gallons of dense sludge, which what? is a really impressive reduction. It was always being digested. Well, yes. And now it's being re-digested by bacteria. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, in, in a process that we actually mentioned earlier. So the bacteria can take the the waste and kind of reduce it, take out a lot of the gases and waters and filter things out of it and it become like a dense sludge And it sludge becomes packet. Marmite. Yeah, or close to it. <laughs> So, uh, in 1988, a legislation was passed that you could no longer dump things directly into the Hudson River. And <laughs> so just
2: sounds like people were taking shits on the Hudson River. <laughs> <laughs> you can't take dumps directly into the Hudson.
0: Yeah, and as a result of that legislation, we had to do something else with our other waste. <laughs> um, but no, in 1988, um, what they then started to do was ship it 103 miles off the coast of New York and dump it in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> where it floated right back. <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly. I think they weighed it down somehow. Um, but in 1992, New York started selling their poop to Colorado. They had been trying for four years to find a buyer for their human waste (laughs) because other cities produce human waste and Milorganite, which is a fertilizer that's sold around the U S that's made from biosolid waste is from the city of Milwaukee's waste. Their city has been selling this stuff as fertilizer and everyone's like, yeah, that's cool. But New York city tried to sell it and everyone was like, we don't want city poop. (laughs) <laughs> people were, were legitimately concerned about the types of pathogens and the types of things that would be in it and just levels of metals and toxins and so no one wanted to buy it until we made a sweet deal for Colorado in which New York City paid for the sometimes hundreds of train car long train <laughs> from New York City to Colorado daily to to sell this like 125 million pounds of poop um,
2: I, really, I really like the idea that People didn't want our city poop because it was too
0: metal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's really hurtful, but they definitely didn't want their, like, you know, middle American kids, like, eating, like, New York poop-enriched foods and then getting all these radical ideas. About- <laughs> 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 um, but all of this is detailed, again, it. it's actually a Radiolab podcast called The Poop Train. Uh, really fascinating story, so I'd refer people there for more more details. But at one point, New York City's poop could could completely fertilize ten thousand acres every season in Colorado.
2: What can I say? We're fertile.
0: <laughs> and actually weirdly, we were because they, they, they documented things that it increased crop yields compared to other fertilizers. Aphids hated it, so it got rid of pests and something called the prairie dogs that used to come in and bother <laughs> oh my God. Aren't even kidding
2: didn't me. Didn't even think about <laughs> you
0: it. Didn't even see that coming.
2: <laughs> you didn't think of prairie dogs <laughs>
0: Oh no! Go on, finish your sentence. I was just gonna say New York City poops prevented prairie dogs, <laughs> which is clearly not true. Oh my gosh! But yeah, that's my quiz, guys. That's it. Right. Great job. Oh, all right. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope this episode was worth it for you, that now for the next month of my life, every time I try to type excellent in, it will autocorrect to excrement. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to check out more content, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. You can browse our fancy new website, faxmachinepodcast.com. You can also find us individually on social media as well. I'm at Whiteboard Rob, Noah, at Arcs and Sciences, and Emily.
1: At underscore EM Costa.
0: And our producer, Anthony, at The Cosmic ACA. This week, tell a friend if you like our podcast and then bring them to our live show at Ooh. Caveat in New York City on April 29th. For details on that, check out our fancy new website, faxmachinepodcast.com. Fax Machine is hosted and written by me, Rob Frawley, Noah Guyverson, and Emily Costa. Production and theme music by Anthony Antonelli. Fax Machine is edited by Noah Guyverson and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Um, So this is an idea that's not new by any means. I think we have even talked about a little bit producing methane. Oof. Wine burp. Sorry. (laughs) 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 <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think we even talked burp. about this.
2: <laughs> producing methane. <laughs> <Blah>. Wine <burp. laughs> Fucking mint.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's our own take. <laughs>